0: Drink and Read Presents War and Peace, Epilogue, Part One, Chapters One through (music) Sixteen, Natasha. You're no longer on the run now Not running after somebody Love's gonna find you somehow I think you can have fun now And I also think you know it Listen, all of us had breakdowns And were not afraid to show it You really don't remember Was it something Pierre said? Or the voices in your head calling Natasha. Natasha, you're no longer fallen. Everybody loves you. That's why everybody's calling. Do yourself a favor and answer. Don't leave them hanging on the line calling Natasha! Hello, I'm Jonathan Kwiatkowski, and we're about to read some good shit. Welcome to the penultimate, that's next to last, episode of Drink and Read, War and Peace Season 1, whatever we want to call it. And I just want to thank you at the top of the episode for joining me on this little adventure as we approach the finish line. And if you just stepped in, that's cool too. Today we've got part one of the epilogue to get through, that is 16 chapters, if my total is right. And last time, you may remember, Natasha and Pierre expressed feelings for one another, Pierre wants to propose, Mary played wingman, it was a great all-around chapter with all of our major, major characters overcoming their grief, searching their souls, and trying to become a better person. And yes, I just referenced Master of Disguise. That's the kind of podcast this is. In addition, we saw that Kutuzov was sent out to pasture, unceremoniously given the boot despite being a better person. Maybe we'll catch up with him and the war side of things, but we have less than a 100 pages to go, so strap in, dear audience members. Before we're off to the races... There are two sections we have to cover, the first being the appendices. I did great. It's fine. These chapters are flowing like wine and dripping like butter. They're so easy to read. The only thing that I probably made a mistake on is the pronunciation of some names and towns, which, as always, mea culpa, my apologies. And this is Drink and Read, so if we're reading, we must be drinking. What are we drinking? What are you drinking? You ask Jonathan Kwiatkowski. Well, I've been trying to take it easy lately on the alcohol consumption, so I'm going to save something special for our last episode, but for now, it's just simply some yellowtail white sangria, because I am basic, but... Let's pretend that this is analogy for the blooming return to life of Natasha, Pierre, and Mary, Mm, just as the notes will bloom on your tongue of this cheap but delicious sangria alternative. With the product placement cleared off the table, let us dive into today's chapters, being the epilogue, part one, chapters one through sixteen. Chapter one, time jump. Here we are seven years past 1812 in the year of 1819, if I did my math correctly, but I didn't go to school for math, so whatever. The narrator gives us the very vague historian's look into this time following the war, and they deem it the reaction. This is when the historical figures and the people of Russia react to what just happened. The major figures, including Emperor Alexander and Napoleon, are scrutinized by history, and judgment is passed harshly upon them. Uh, duh. War crimes? Tolstoy informs us, or the narrator informs us, that even as children are growing up reading War and Peace, there are still stones thrown at Emperor Alexander I reign. Basic gist of the chapter is that even if you're famous and you've got all the power, the money, yada, 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 people are going to tear you down no matter what. But if you're tearing that person down, make sure you check yourself in the mirror because can we really judge another human being for their actions? But no one is a true judge for good or evil. And if these actions hadn't have happened, if these lives weren't lost, if their lives weren't saved, if someone won, someone lost, the world would be a totally different And if we allow that human life can be governed by reason, the possibility of life is annihilated. So saith the author. Chapter 2, the narrator tells us that chance and genius are the cause of this. Chance, the completely random chance on why the war was fought. Was it for French? Was it for the Russians? Was it for civilization? No one really knows. Chance played its cards. Things played out the way it should. But genius profited off of it. What does that mean? I don't know. There's a sheep analogy where the farmers lead the sheep to a pen and they think that it's chance or genius that the largest sheep eats the most, but the sheep is probably regretting that because it doesn't know that if it eats the most, it's going to live a good life, but then it's going to get killed for its meat, which will then feed the humans. And honestly, no one truly knows who profited, or why that war was fought, or what would be different if it didn't happen in the first place, and humans just have to go along with that scenario. They can't be dwelling on things that are beyond their ken. Otherwise, our little human minds will be so addled that we won't be able to tell up from down, side from side. And Tolstoy, what is with the philosophy? I know you like to include it at the beginning of these sections, but we want to know about Pierre, Mary, and the rest give us natasha tolstoy daddy chapter three this whole chapter is an entire scalding read devoted solely to napoleon it's a very thorough quick analysis of how france came to be how napoleon came to be thanks to people like alexander the great and caesar and without them this whole trajectory would have been different Napoleon's ideas of glory and greatness got him nothing because they were fake. They had no backing behind them. It catches up to Napoleon's many early victories in Russia, the taking of Moscow, and then the French fleeing. I say it all the time, but this is, and that's what you missed on Glee, the chapter. And just history repeats itself. Napoleon, who was hailed as a hero two years later, is sent off to an island with people to control, kind of like excommunicated from the French... Uh, circles that he tried to make the greatest country in the world. You never can tell how history works out, but when you do, it's ironically kind of humorous. Chapter 4, Napoleon returns home, and where he should be scolded and imprisoned, he is welcomed with joy, but a month later, he'll be forgotten and excommunicated. A lot of theater analogies are made, with Napoleon taking off his costume, the stage manager giving him a few closing notes, and him shuffling off to his private island prison. And Alexander the first finds himself in a new position of power in 1815. And instead of using this power himself by the grace of God or stupidity, it's equal chances each there, he hands the power to the people that he hates and says, do with it what you will not unto us, not unto us, but unto thy name. I am also a man like you. Let me live like a man and think of my soul and of God. So change of story, turn the page. I've said it many a times, but full 180? Crazy. Purpose is compared to a bee. A bee stings a child, and therefore the child thinks that all bees are destined to sting. A beekeeper keeps the bees that makes the honey and says, Oh, okay, the bees are supposed to make honey. A um, a cartographer sees that the bee is taking honey flower from flower and pollinating, so that's the purpose of the bee, but as human beings... We can't understand the greater purpose of the bee. All these little purposes built into one. We cannot see the bigger picture. It is beyond our scope. And that's why we can't understand the purpose of one man, be it Napoleon, Emperor Alexander, or Joe and Betty Birkan at home. Chapter 5. Natasha and Pierre are married in the year 1813. And luckily for the Rostovs, this is a moment of joy before they lose their patriarch. Count Rostov dies just that same year it was just too much for the old count to bear with you know the fire in moscow the abandoning of moscow natasha's problems problems financially the loss of petya it all weighed on his poor soul and was too heavy for him to bear after some time and although still poor and in debt the family may be um countess rostov is by his side as he dies he apologizes to her and for fudging up all of the son's financial affairs But truly he was a great man who was magnanimous and generous and opened his house up to many people many different times. He is a good man, Count Rostov, and he will be missed. Nikolai takes a leave from the army and he goes back home and discovers that the count was doing a good job hushing up their financial affairs because they owe two times what their property is worth. People tell him to renounce his inheritance, but he looks as that as giving the cold shoulder to his father and says he will take the inheritance but use it to start paying off the debts that the family owes. The creditors hound Nikolai now that the father's dead and it's their time to jump and get paid. Nikolai kind of bumbles the financial affairs and sells the the estate for half its worth, still leaving half the debt unpaid. Uh, Pierre gives... Nikolai, his brother-in-law, 30,000 ruples to settle major things and to keep him from going to prison, but still the family owes money. Nikolai can't go back to the army as a commander because his mother won't let him because she is the only man in his life, her life now, and she will not let him go. Natasha and Pierre are living in Petersburg and don't have any idea that Nikolai's dealing with all these things. He's supporting himself, Sonia, and his mother on a 12,000 ruple salary, And he has to try and convince his mother while supporting them that they're not poor anymore, otherwise that will destroy her. Sonia is doing everything, caring for the Countess and Nikolai, and not expecting anything in return. And the more Nikolai appreciates her, the less he loves her, which doesn't make sense to me. Sonia gets the shaft. Yep, there I said it. It's the end of the book, we're in the epilogue, and Sonia gets the shaft. She has done everything suffered for this family, tried to keep everyone together with their worldly possessions, and what did she do? Get stuck working and helping. But, I mean, she's magnanimous and generous and that's why we love her, but could she at least gotten love? And Nikolai's stressed because he can't save up anything because these purchases and fooling his mother and thinking that they're rich are actually causing slight more debts, so it looks like an impossible scenario for Nikolai and the Rostovs. Chapter 6, Mary is back in Moscow and she hears about the Rostovs and Nikolai's plight and goes, It's my time to step in. Mary has entered the fray. And Mary is all, that sounds just like Nikolai. I love him. Ugh, Dreamy and rushes over there. But Nikolai, hiding behind his pride and for his mother's vanity, kind of shoves Mary away and goes, What are you even doing here? I don't have time for this. And Mary leaves and Sonia's like, What the fuck was that for? We need the money. And Countess Rostov chimes in, too, saying, without knowing that they need the money, Yeah, I love Mary. Why'd you give her the cold shoulders? Send her back. Go after her. Countess Rostov knows something's up, because she's always like, Nikolai, you're hiding everything from me. Come clean with the truth. And Nikolai goes, Me? Lie to you, Mother? I would never as I lie to you. Nikolai goes after her, and Mary's trying to convince herself, like, Yeah, this is what I deserve. I never expected Nikolai's love anyway. I don't care for him at all. Why you always lying? Why the fuck you lying? One day in the winter, Nikolai shows up at Mary's residence, and the two are talking about nothing, not broaching the subject of their true feelings of one another. Uh, Mademoiselle Boileau is in the room, trying to coach Mary through the conversation. is about to get up and leave. Uh, Mary sends Mademoiselle Boileau to go get a pillow for the Count and Countess and leave them alone. And then it is here that their emotions for each other truly come out for once. They both confess their appreciation for one another and that they're suffering through hard times in their life and they would not have been able to do it without each other's help from the sidelines. And the light bulb goes off in Mary's head. She goes, that's why I love you. Not because you're handsome, gorgeous, strong and all that, but because you're self-sacrificing as I am. You've seen what I've seen. You've done what I've done. You've lived the same life experiences that I have. We can relate to one another. Mary is thinking, like, maybe it's for the money because he's poor now and I'm rich, but no, that's not it. I shouldn't think like that. Nikolai picks up on this and starts to leave, and Mary goes, no, don't go. They both grow apart for a second and then come together. There's a lot of dots as if time has passed in the novel, and in Chapter 7, the two are married in three years without selling off mary's estate nikolai is able to raise the funds and enough to get his family out of debt so the rostovs are saved financially as well and in another three years he's settling his debts and is able to afford a new estate outside of bald hills and try to get his father's old home back and as is the case in a lot of tolstoy novels nikolai finds passion for farming working with the land he is able to work with gusto and vigor and piece together the remnants of his life that war had torn up he works with the poor farmer musics and is able to see their lives and their worth that they have a bevy of skills that nikolai can only hope to possess and he tries to learn from them become a better person Nikolai then listens to the peasants on who to appoint as head of household in order to keep the estate running, and he tries to give them fair wages, free time, support, and like worker rights, which they've never had before. The thing that uh, Andre and Pierre were talking about the whole entire beginning of the novel Nikolai is putting through. And whereas the house staff was usually doted on and like offered more riches than the poor basic worker on the estate, Nikolai is like, no, we're going to send the house staff off to the army when the opportunity presents themselves so they can get some genuine life experience and become more likable like me. Mary at first cannot see why her husband is so happy breaking his back every day working out to, you know, get the crops and such and then join her for tea. But I think she can piece together that this is more soul enriching. And she also doesn't get why he's such a a hard-ass when it comes to work now all of a sudden, but she says, eh, he's passionate about it, and that makes me happy. And Nikolai finds a good balance between being stern and strict and kind to the people that work for him. And in fact, we don't know when he dies, but after he dies, at some point in the timeline, everyone recalls him fondly, like, yeah, there was a boss that you can get behind. He knew what he was doing, and he worked us hard and treated us right. Chapter 8, as Nikolai grows older, so too does his temper. And in the first year of marriage, he's a little bit hot off the press. He's ready to throw hands at whoever defies him, gets in his way. But during the second year, he mellows out a bit. There's a new headman on the estate who replaces Drawn, who we met a long time ago. And Nikolai calls him out on his bullshit. Hands are thrown. He goes up to tell Mary about this, and Mary is horrified. Mary starts crying. Nikolai can't put two and two together because she doesn't like to see him consumed by anger, but he does comment that her eyes are more beautiful than ever as she cries. She explains to Nikolai that she never expected physical violence from him and the headman's different because he lives in different circumstances and had a different upbringing and a different life experience, but Nikolai sees that this troubles her and vows never to be violent again. She sees on Nikolai's hand that he hits someone so hard that his signet cameo ring split down the middle and says, Let this be a mark of your violence. Try not to do it again. But as marriage often goes, about twice a year, as their marriage continues, Nikolai comes, he forgets his previous promise and then promises not to be violent again. I mean, it's just the little quips and quiggles in the relationship, right? The gentry of the province where Nikolai and Mary live respect him, but they don't admire him. They think he's so consumed in farm work that he'd rather be out hunting or farming than spending time climbing the social classes. And yeah, that hasn't paid off for anyone in this book. We see what jerks you are behind the scene at your little salons and such. And this is a parallel for Nikolai earlier in the novel when he went off to join his cousin uncle and they went hunting. That whole Sonia kiss in the back door incident. Nikolai's love for Mary is growing more and more every day, but we learn, dear readers, that Sonia's been living in the house with them too, making a slightly awkward situation because Nikolai confesses everything that he ever felt for Sonia. Mary's like, that's fine, we can't blame her, it's her predicament, she's your family, she couldn't really marry you. And Nikolai goes, "Will you promise to love her and not be jealous of her? Mary makes this promise, but she can't help from hating Sonia deep down in her heart and having horrible feelings towards her. Mary's talking to Natasha one day, and Natasha brings up the subject of Sonia, saying that there's a unique passage in the Bible that reads and describes Sonia to a T, to him who has will be given, from him who has not will be taken. And Natasha's convinced that Sonia lacks any form of egoism. She calls her a sterile blossom, which isn't the best thing, because Sonia deserves love too, but maybe she doesn't really desire it that much in her life. She's okay playing the supporting role, the helping hand, but I still feel like Sonia gets the short end of the stick. But Sonia lives out the rest of her days as a steward family member, helping out whoever needs, caring for the old and the young, and they compare her to a cat that she's always there in the house, and she always does it without expecting any gratitude in return. There are sadder endings, and there are happier endings out there. Her ending is substantially average, but if War and Peace 2 ever comes around, it better be the Sonya story. You know I'm claiming that. When I rewrite a War and Peace adjacent book, I'm claiming Sonya's story as my own. We need to see her perspective on things. And the spacious House of Bald Hills still stands. It's enough room to house many different families, servants, host parties, and birthdays, and name day celebrations. And this family is stronger, ready to stand together. Chapter 9. Natasha goes to visit Mary on the 5th of December, 1820. Pierre is off in Petersburg working, and she brings along their children along on that day. Uh, Nikolai's old friend, Denyazov, who harbored feelings for Natasha, also shows up. So it's set up for another family dinner with uh, Nikolai, Mary, the Countess Rostov, a friend, a nephew, a tutor, Sonia, Denyazov, Natasha, her three children, their governesses, Michael Ivanich, who's the architect that's retiring and living there in Bald Hills because he built the house, which is a cushy position to retire in. Nikolai's in a bad mood because work isn't going the way he wants it to that day and setting things up for this occasion and getting it all out of the way. Mary notices this and then can read the room and waits until she can question him as to why he's in such a foul mood. Mary can't find the exact reason why Nikolai's angry, and she suspects that he's angry at her for absolutely no reason, and their dinner's kind of stony, except for Denizel, who peps up the conversation. Mary says goodnight to Nikolai, and she's still like, well, I'm kind of pissed at you anyway, and I don't know why you're angry, it's making me angry now. I think Mary is pregnant at this point, too, with another child? Nikolai gets flustered, says he'll have to work hard tomorrow so he's going to rest. Mary thinks he's always like that, he talks to everyone else but me, and this mirrors perfectly the, um, andre Lisa relationship that we opened up in the book. Are they losing the luster of their marriage now? Mary gets in a mood, everyone's joy is bothering her, she blames Sonia, and the book says she always blames Sonia. Uh, and Sonia's doing her best. Mary goes upstairs to check on her husband, who is sleeping and doesn't like to be awoken. Sonia goes, that's not really a good idea. Andre the eldest, comes up behind Mary and, like, is like, what are you doing? Dad's sleeping. Andre, not Andre, Nikolai wakes up and he's very perturbed by the situation. Their youngest daughter, who happens to also be named Natasha, is three and just as precocious as the young Natasha was, runs in and charms her father into mellowing out his mood and calling him Mary for a conversation. Nikolai goes, I'm not angry at you. I'm never angry at you. We love each other. It's not your beauty. You're beautiful to me. You are not plain. I'm angry because I don't know what to do. I want Pierre to stay with us till spring so we can figure things out together as a full family. And it just was irritating me. I'm sorry I lashed out. There's this reconciliation between them, prompted by the young Natasha, and it's very cute. Someone's at the door, we assume it's Pierre, who's arrived a little bit late because he had other business to attend to. Mary goes to see him in, and Nikolai spends time with his daughter Natasha and recalls that when he gets older, he's going to have to dance the Daniel Cooper with her too, as his father once did long, long ago. Mary comes in, says it's Pierre, and that his joy brought Natasha joy, and she's overwhelmed with joy having reconciled with her husband, and she doesn't remember having a happier moment. In chapter 10, we get a bit of a backstory between Natasha and Pierre. Natasha was married in the year 1813, and she has three daughters and one son with Pierre. And she's become more of a woman, no longer the young girl. We see that the world has hardened her slightly, but deep inside, she can be prompted to once again sing uh, when the moment strikes her. And when she does, there is that unbridled passion that Natasha had in her youth, showing once more. Natasha has turned into a homebody. She rarely goes out, and when she goes out, people are disappointed. They go, oh, this isn't the fiery, uh, spitfire, little young one that we knew once long ago. She's changed. She's become a matron now. And Natasha's fine with that, and the people closest to her understand that all she wants is a family and to provide, to be happy. Natasha goes against the words of advice of society and lets herself go and, quote, I mean, she probably just, you know, puts on a few pounds. She... Uh, Doesn't really focus on her singing now because she's not any kind of singer. She is a good singer, but it was never really going to be a professional choice for her to do. And she just devotes herself to her friends and family. Natasha's fine with her intimate circle of Mary, her brother, her mother, Sonia, and Pierre, and her children. All she really needs in her life. People think that Natasha's a kept woman, but really she's calling the shots behind the scene, and Pierre is willing and able and grateful to submit to anything that Natasha wants. It's a give-and-take relationship, and, you know, they're both benefiting from it, and there is love here. It is definitely better for Pierre than Helene was. Natasha sets a few ground rules. She says, you can't flirt with women when you're married now. You can't go to clubs and spend an exorbitant amount of time and money there. If you go on business trips, that's the only time you're out of my sight for a long period of time. And even then, I want to be involved in intellectual decisions in this family. All reasonable things to ask for. And at home, Natasha likes playing the wife. When Pierre is busy reading or working, she insists that no one bother him. If Pierre needs anything, she will get it for him personally. Natasha insists that she's following the orders of Pierre, but they are imaginary orders. Pierre never really gave anything, and she runs the household, uh, raises the children, and I mean, I think she likes making Pierre happy. They do describe her as, like, a servant to Pierre, which I really don't like, um, but... If she's finding joy in it, and it's out of her own free will and decision, sure. I mean, there are times I do miss that young Natasha, too. But we all change with age and experience, and Natasha seems happy. When they do fight or argue as couples do, Pierre is astonished to find that after a time, both of them have changed their opinions or learned from each other's sides of the argument that they can go better forward in the future. After seven years of marriage together, Pierre feels that he is deserving of love and says that he is not a bad man, and in fact, his world has been changed for the better because he knows Natasha. He has a beautiful family, he is a different person. It is happy. I keep saying things are happy, and that's what we wanted for these characters. It's commonplace, it's typical, they're full of routines and the humdrum of living, but isn't that where true happiness is? Chapter 11, Pierre has been uh, staying in Petersburg, taking care of business, and Natasha's upset. Denyazov, who used to be in love with her, sees this irritation and looks at it as as a chance that, uh, you know, of the things that could have happened if he fell in love with her and she with him, but things are settled the way they are now. Natasha, in her sadness and irritation at Pierre's absence, takes her time devoting it towards her children, especially raising her youngest one. One day Pierre um, arrives and Natasha switches emotions, runs downstairs and enthusiastically greets her husband. I think that this chapter is meant to mirror her waiting for André in her youth and how she feels the same kind of pent-up anxiety about Pierre not being in her life for two weeks But she waits it out, and when he returns, she is very happy for it. Pierre happily greets his wife Natasha, asks how their youngest, Petya, is doing, goes in and, you know, holds his small child in his very, very large hands. And it's a good father-son moment right here. He's happy with a family, and that's all we could wish for Pierre. Chapter 12, in Bald Hills, all the families, the Rostovs, the Bolkonskys, and others join together to become one-family units, and they share their experiences, both good and bad, but they are better for it. Everyone, servants, family, and especially young nikolenika Nikolushka, who's grown up 15 years old, is happy to see that Pierre has returned. Mary's like, your new father, your father-in-law, um... Nikolai should be the object of affection and of course he loves his new dad uh, but Nikolushka's eyes go towards Pierre. Pierre seems to have lived three lifetimes worth of experiences. He's always animated when he talks about Andre and the others and he draws Nikolai into his conversations. And although Pierre is supporting a family or two now, he finds that he's spending less because he's not splurging on things that he doesn't need, or latest luxuries, he's devoting it towards the family. And yet there is some sadness here, with the loss of her husband and Petya, uh, Countess Rostov has fallen into a deep depression, she's going past 60 years old now, and she goes through the routines of life, but she barely lives. If she feels like she's lived too much, like eaten something decadent or spoken when she shouldn't have spoken, she takes her frustration out on her friend, Mrs. Belov, who lives with her and is going quite deaf, so she starts yelling at her. And she unfortunately is living until the day she dies, but not actually living. She uh, seems to pass glances that say memento mori, remember that we all die. But such is life. We live, we lose, we die. Repeat. Chapter 13, Pierre gifts Countess Rostov a lot of things that are beautiful and pleasant, but she doesn't show her joy or expression over them. She thanks him politely, but almost acts as if she's been given nothing. I assume this is her name day or adjacent to it or just like a welcome back present from Pierre. The rest of the family don't really speak around Countess Rostov because they don't want her to feel FOMO, the fear of missing out, or feel like she uh, is part of something that she shouldn't be part of. So Pierre kind of bottles up his many stories that he's got and his travels and doesn't share them around the Countess Rostova. One day, Pierre starts talking to Denizov, who's hanging around like as the Uncle Jesse type character, I guess, that just comes and goes into this house as he pleases, which is fine, it's cute, but the conversation shifts politically and Countess Rostova overhears this and goes, you know, it's all Prince Alexander's fault. He was a nice man when I met him in society, but uh, I'm speaking out of turn and she gets up sternly and leaves the room. But in this stately solitude, the children are still enjoying life. I suppose it's around Christmas. I know I said name day or welcome back, but it is December when everyone's returning home and the children are celebrating by counting their stockings by the fireplace and uh, just passionately singing as children are wont to do. Chapter 16, after the festivities, Pierre, Mary, and Nikolushka slash Nikolenica are left alone in a room and Pierre comments on how much Nikolushka looks like his father Andre. Everyone else in the room, including Natasha, Sonia, Denyazov, have differing reactions to this, but I think it's time maybe they broach the subject of his father with the young boy the conversation switches to politics and all the men including Nicolenica, go into a study to talk business and the women go upstairs to care for the children with the nannies pierre is trying to convince the older Nikolai that it's time for people to band together and not worry about the glory days of old i mean really now it's down to the common men to defend one another from whatever may come their way And Nikolai is a bit of a slave of fashion and uh, decorum. He wants to be with the old ways a bit more, and he's angrily trying to listen to what Pierre is trying to say. Um, He notices Nikolushka's in the room, tries to get him to go, but Pierre goes, no, let the boy stay. He needs to learn. Pierre wants to start a secret society, a la the... Freemasons, but it's not going to really come down to that, and I think Pierre's thinking more hypothetically. Natasha comes to the room and sees that Nikolenica, the younger, is enamored in whatever Pierre's saying, and she notices the slight similarities between him and André. This is a nice mirror for Pierre and Nikolai because Nikolai is fighting with Pierre like Andre used to and saying that even though you're my best friend, you're talking a load of rubbish. And this is how far they've come. Remember when they were playing war games? Pierre was the grown man-child sitting and moving soldiers on a board. And Nikolai went, uh, who is this old dude? Natasha enters, defends Pierre's ideas, although weakly, it changes the subject and the demeanor of the room, then Nikolushka asks Pierre, if father were alive, I think that he would agree with you, and Pierre agrees to that, and there is this cute moment between the families that have come together with Nikolushka. Chapter 15, it's after dinner and Nikolai is upstairs undressing with Mary in their room and sees Mary's writing down in something. She reveals that this is her diary and Nikolai goes to offer a glance at said diary. He reads how she's been caring dutifully for the children while he's been away working and he commends her for her intelligence and her foresight and he really admires her. He thinks that Mary is beautiful in her own way and he's happy that she can run a household independently. Mary is team Nikolai, mostly when it comes to the fight they had downstairs. She does agree that Pierre sees the bigger picture and Pierre is determined to help out his fellow man in any way possible. But she says you cannot neglect yourself as well because, you know, in us is God. Mary tells Nikolai that, remember, she's Nikolushka's aunt, she's not a mother, and she cannot be a replacement for a mother. Maybe it would be good for Nikolai to get out of the house and make some new younger friends. Nikolai says that he will bring his son to Petersburg, where he'll hang out with Pierre and the younger children and get a start in society on the summer. So this is something to look forward to. And Mary just listens to Nikolai as he talks business. And in her husband, she is determined to stand by his side no matter what. He is growing and experiencing life, and she will be there and present for whatever he needs. And in our final chapter of the penultimate episode of War and Peace, chapter 16, Natasha is alone with Pierre. In their private and intimate life, Natasha dotes on Pierre and reveals that she suffers without him, she can't really live without him, she loves Mary and wants Pierre to enjoy Mary's company as well, but always in his heart should he favor his wife, Natasha. Pierre is of the one-track mind, just thinking about the conversation with Nikolai and stating that in Petersburg, he's trying to band together the government and the common people for a greater purpose. Natasha understands this and goes, you know, would Platon, what would Platon think of this situation? And Pierre goes, Platon, I haven't thought of that man in a long time, but I suppose he would be against what I was doing. Platon wanted me to focus on myself, the individual in relationship to my family, not the greater picture of things. And at this point, I'm a little confused. Natasha mentions another woman that could be Helene, you know, visiting Helene's grave or wherever she's buried, or it could be another woman that kind of affected their honeymoon period. But Natasha, uh, Pierre replies to Natasha, like, if I saw her, I wouldn't even recognize her. Um, kind of went over my head here. If you could, you know, reach out in comments or get to me in some form of social media, I would love to hear your thoughts on this section. They both comment that they were trifles of the past, and now they're happy. They get a little lovey-dovey with one another. They hug, they embrace, and then they both have a stupid thought, but want to let the other one finish it first. Pierre goes, you know, most uh, vicious things in this life start simply in leading to that all actions have a consequence of said action. So that's what I'm stressing about, the bigger picture here. And Natasha goes, well, my problem was very insignificant. Today I was uh, cradling uh, Petya, one of our young ones, uh, in the uh, nursery, and he was clinging so much to my chest, it was kind of cute. So they both can see each other's perspective, whereas Natasha's raising the children, Pierre's trying to get a little bit more political. But as good husband and wife, they come to terms together. Downstairs in young Nikolenica's room, he's sleeping with the lights on because he's afraid of the dark and he has just awoken from a nightmare in which he and Pierre were leading a great army. Their rival army is led by uh, his uncle-father Nikolai. I keep forgetting that Nikolai isn't the father of Nikolushka. When he was in the study with the other men he actually took these wax uh like crayons or candles or something and we started snapping them i think it was like to draw things out and of course nikolai gets a little bit mad at him in this dream he's calling out uh, nikolushka looks to pierre who turns into his real father andre standing beside him and this andre in his dream appears to be his real father who looks at him with nothing but love holds him and cradles him And in seeing his father in his dream, all he wants to do is to be loved, to be good, to be remembered, to be great. The same thing that all of these young people have been striving for for the novel. And the cycle continues again. He wakes up, is asked by his tutor who's sleeping in the same room if he's okay. And Nikolai goes, yeah, I'm fine. But uh, Uncle Pierre, now there's a man that I can get behind. If my father was really into Uncle Pierre's advice, then I too will follow in his footsteps. And with that, we've caught up for the final time with our major characters of War and Peace. In the next 12 or so chapters, the final portion or part of the epilogue, we're going to see how Tolstoy dissects his philosophies that he presented throughout the novel. But in my opinion, this read-through was a very great time. We got to focus on a lot of the characters, be them major or minor, and see how they are genuinely portrayed as real living people i said it from the beginning and i'm still sure of it but i think this is the most humanistic novel that's ever been created or at least i've had the experience of reading my heart is overjoyed that i could be a uh, reading warm piece on this first season of the podcast drink and read and who knows what may lie ahead Um, Of course, we will be finishing this novel after 25 weeks of reading next week um, in the epilogue, part two, chapters one through 12. If you liked my commentary, and it's been a few weeks of that, remember you can always reach out, rate, review, and subscribe on Anchor, Podbean, Stitcher, Apple Podcast, and more. Any review, especially the five-star reviews, really helps us take place in the algorithm and get more notice from fellow fans. If you like my commentary, although it'd be all over the place, please feel free to also check out two of my other podcasts, one being Nightcaps of the Theater, where my buddies, Mac Cabrera and Mark Zero Jr. keep me more on a track when we watch movies and get a little drizzy drunk. And then if anime is more of your, your cup of tea, please tune in to Anime Was Not a Mistake with me and my fellow co-host, Daniel Ryan. We are starting a Cyborg 009 The Cyborg Soldier rewatch entitled The Summer of Cyborg. It's a double watch hosted by both of us for the first time in a 50 or so episode series. So I hope you tune in there. And next week, mon amis, dear readers, our voyage, our journey comes to an end with War and Peace. But for now, as always, remember to drink and read responsibly. Prochet. Thank you for listening to Drink and Read. Hosting for this podcast brought to you by Anchor. This podcast can also be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, and more. If you have any thoughts or questions, or any beverage recommendations, please feel free to reach out to us on Drink and Read Pod at Instagram. Support of this podcast is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you.